Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's let's get get our our fix. Today, addicts, we are talking about the railroad killer. This is going to be a super good one, so I'm super excited. Today, we are drinking an iced French vanilla coffee with some cream and definitely some sugar to go inside of all that. If you're interested in knowing some at-home delicious recipes for your coffee, or if you're just interested in finding some new cool products to add in, head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com. We want to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts, specifically AB underscore 1313, Mrs. Lingen 15, and Jennifer, because <laughs> it's F-U-U-R. You get the fur. <laughs> so these awesome individuals have rated, reviewed, and or shared our content across all social media outlets. So we couldn't do this without them and your continued support and willingness to spread the word about our podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next week's episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. You will find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There's also a beautiful donate button and click our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. And all you do is you just add your items to your cart and you check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Angel Matarino Resendez was born on August 1st, 1960 in Izucar de Montemoros, in the state of Puebla, Mexico. His mother, Virginia de Matarino, claims the real spelling of his name is R-E-C-E-N-D-I-S, not R-E-S-E-N-D-I-Z, which he uses. She admits that her son spent his formative years not with her, but with other family that seemed to lack proper guidance. His mother even said homosexuals in Puebla may have sexually abused him. Resendez's wife reported that he was raised by his mother until he was seven. From seven until 12, Resendez lived with his grandparents. He then moved to Acapulco, Mexico on his own. At age 14, he traveled to Florida illegally, where he lived until he was 17 years old. Virtually an orphan, Resendez roamed the streets as a child without a real family role model. The FBI has identified a sister in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and other relatives both north and south of the border. Relatives in the U.S. have migrated as far north as the Great Lakes and as far east as Vermont. According to U.S. Law Enforcement and Immigration and Naturalization Service, which we're just going to stick to INS for the sake of time going forward, um, their records indicate that Resendez was first removed from the United States in 1976 when he was 17. Resendez has since entered the United States illegally many times, been arrested and convicted of numerous crimes served his sentences, and then been returned to Mexico, only to travel again back to the United States and resume his criminal activities. So we're going to go on a brief rundown of everything that has happened in Resendez's criminal history and encounters with the INS before 1998. So starting in August of 1976, this was the first time that he was deported back to Mexico from San Antonio, Texas. In September of 1976, he was arrested by security guards for trespassing on Chrysler property in Sterling Heights, Michigan, turned over to INS, and granted voluntary departure. Less than a month later, he was apprehended for entry without inspection by the Border Patrol in McAllen, Texas, voluntarily returned to Mexico on the same exact date. It was almost a year later, in September of 1977, he was convicted and incarcerated for destroying private property and leaving the scene of a crime in Corinth, Mississippi. On October 13, 1977, he was voluntarily returned to Mexico. In 1979, this was kind of a big year for him, he was charged with grand theft auto in Tampa, Florida. The charges were subsequently dismissed in lieu of more serious charges that were pending in Miami, Florida. 
So the ones that were in Miami, Florida, were that he broke into a home, ransacked it, and beat the 88-year-old owner until he was semi-conscious, then stole his car. The next month, he was arrested and charged with burglary of a dwelling in Clark County, Kentucky, subsequently extradited to Miami, Florida, to face the charges for the crime that had happened a month prior. In April of 1980, he was convicted of burglary, aggravated battery, and grand theft auto in Miami, and on May 23, 1980, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, he was paroled within six years, and at that time, he was detained by INS. On September 13, 1985, he was deported from Brownsville, Texas, back to Mexico. Later that same year, in December of 1985, he was convicted of making a false representation of U.S. citizenship, and he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment in federal prison. In June of 1986, he was apprehended at Laredo, Texas, Port of Entry, attempting to enter the United States. He presented fraudulent U.S. voter registration card and a birth certificate. On July 17th of 1986, he pled guilty to making a false representation of U.S. citizenship and subsequently sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. In August of 1987, he was released to INS custody, and on October 2nd, 1987, he was deported from Brownsville, Texas, back to Mexico. On January 19th of 1988, he was charged in New Orleans, Louisiana, with defrauding an innkeeper and possession of a concealed weapon. Charges were dismissed due to lack of evidence. On November 30th, 1988, he was arrested in St. Louis, Missouri for fraudulently applying for social security cards with false documentations. March 29th of 1989, he was convicted in U.S. District Court of Missouri for, among other charges, making false statements to federal officials, falsely representing to be a U.S. citizen, being a convicted felon in possession of a firearm, and re-entry after deportation, and was sentenced to 30 months imprisonment. On May 13, 1991, he was deported from El Paso, Texas to Mexico after his release from prison. On March 3rd of 1992, he was arrested for burglary of a residence in Las Cruces, New Mexico. On August 10, 1992, he pled guilty to burglary and was sentenced to three years imprisonment with 18 months suspended. About a year later, in April of 93, he was released from New Mexico prison to an INS detainer. Just a few months later, in June of 1993, on June 9th, he was arrested in Carson County, Texas, for driving a vehicle that had been stolen two days earlier in Missouri, after the Missouri authorities declined to seek his return to face auto theft charges, he pled guilty on July 8th of 1993 to misdemeanor offense in Carson County of evading arrest. He was sentenced and given credit for time served. On December 7th, 1994, he was arrested by Albuquerque, New Mexico police for driving a vehicle that was stolen in Arizona the day before. Then he was released on bond. In May of 1995, he was indicted in Albuquerque for receiving a stolen vehicle and resisting arrest. On August 18, 1995, he was arrested by railroad police in San Bernardino, California for trespassing on railroad property. They found him with a stolen handgun in his bag and he was charged with trespassing, carrying a loaded firearm, and receiving stolen property. Just a few days later, on August 25, 1995, he was convicted of all charges in San Bernardino and sentenced to 30 days imprisonment. In September of 95, he was voluntarily returned by INS to Mexico. On August 4, 1996, there is a warning issued for trespassing at Norfolk Southern Railroad Yard in Mackin, Georgia. Just a few days after that, on August 6, 1996, he was arrested for trespassing at a railroad yard in Science Hill, Kentucky. He pled guilty and was sentenced to three days imprisonment and then released. So throughout the list of arrests that we just mentioned, uh, he went by so many different aliases. Some of them included Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez, Jose Reyes Resendez, Angel Reyes, Jose Koenig Mengele, Daniel Arnold, Daniel Arnold Eduardo, Daniel Arnold Eduardo III, Angel Joseph Reyes, Antonio Martinez, 
Carlos Cluther Rodriguez, Ariel Martinez, and Rafael Resendez Ramirez. I mean, so many different names. And this is just proof as to why it was so difficult to locate him. Um, but we'll kind of go into that more later. But obviously, Resendez had an extensive criminal history in the United States as a young adult. Before 1998, he was deported to Mexico by the INS at least three times and was voluntarily returned to Mexico by the INS at least four times. So there's really no information uh, that could be found describing Resendez's whereabouts between his last known arrest in August of 1996 and his first apprehension by the Border Patrol in January of 1998. According to an INS database called IDENT, in 1998, Resendez was apprehended a total of seven times by the Border Patrol as he attempted to enter the United States illegally from Mexico. Each time the Border Patrol processed Resendez in IDENT and voluntarily returned him within a few hours to Mexico. Resendez killed at least 15 people with rocks, a pickaxe, and other blunt objects, mainly in their homes. He had become known as the Railroad Killer as most of his crimes were committed near railroads where he had jumped off the trains which he was using to travel around the country. After each murder, he would linger in the homes for a while, mainly to eat. Resendez took sentimental items and also laid out the victim's driver's licenses to learn about their lives. He stole jewelry and other items and gave them to his wife and mother who lived in Rodeo, Durango, Mexico. Much of the jewelry was sold or melted down. Some of the stolen items that had been removed from his victims' homes were returned by his wife and mother after his surrender. Money was sometimes left at the scene. He raped some of his female victims, however, rape was probably a secondary intent. Okay, we are now going to go on another list, but this is going to be the big one. This is going to be about the serial murders that were attributed to Resendez. The first two victims of Resendez were an unidentified male and female. We don't know how old they were or even the exact date that they died, but we do know that they died sometime in 1986 in Bexar County, Texas. The female was shot four times with a 38 caliber weapon with her body dumped in an abandoned farmhouse. Resendez stated that he met the woman at a homeless shelter and they took a motorcycle trip together and brought a gun along to fire for target practice. Resendez said that he shot and killed the woman for disrespecting him. Remains of Jane Doe were found on March 23, 1986. Supposedly, the boyfriend of the previous victim, Resendez said he shot and killed him and dumped his body in a creek somewhere between San Antonio and Uvalde. Resendez said that he killed the man because the man was involved in black magic. This man's body was never found. Resendez confessed to these first two murders in September of 2001 in hopes that doing so would speed up his execution. The third victim was Michael White. He was a 22-year-old male, and he was killed on July 19, 1991 in San Antonio, Texas. He was bludgeoned to death with a brick. His body was found in the front yard of an abandoned downtown house. Resendez also confessed to this murder in September of 2001. During this confession, he drew a map of the crime scene and claimed that he killed White because he was homosexual. The fourth victim was Jesse Howell, another male, only 19, and he died on March 23, 1997 in Ocala, Florida. He was also bludgeoned to death, but this time it was with an air hose coupling, and he was left beside the railroad track. Now, this man was the fiancé of the next victim, who was Wendy Von Huben. She was only 16. She died on the same day, March 23, 1997, in Ocala, Florida. She was raped, strangled, suffocated, both manually and with duct tape, and buried in a shallow grave in Sumter County, Florida. The sixth victim attributed to Resendez was Roberto Castro. He's a male, 54 years old, and he was murdered on July 5, 1997, in Colton, California. He was a drifter that was beaten to death with a piece of plywood in a rail yard. Though not officially charged, Resendez is considered the prime suspect in this case. The seventh victim was Christopher Mayer, a male, 21 years old, and he died on August 29, 1997 in Lexington, Kentucky. 
He was a University of Kentucky student walking along nearby railroad tracks with his girlfriend, 20-year-old Holly Dunn Peddleton, when the two were attacked by Resendez. He bludgeoned Mayer to death with a 52-pound rock. Resendez raped and severely beat Pendleton, who nearly died. She was the only known survivor of an attack by Resendez and went on to tell her story to news outlets and TV shows. The eighth victim was Leafy Mason. She was an 87-year-old female, and she died on October 4, 1998, in Hughes Springs, Texas. She was beaten to death with an antique flat iron after he entered her house through a window. Her front door faces the Kansas City Southern Rail Line tracks only 50 yards away. The ninth victim attributed to Resendez was Fanny Whitney Byers. She is an 81-year-old female, and she was murdered on December 10, 1998, in Carl, Georgia. She was bludgeoned to death with a tire rim in her home, which was located near CSX Transportation Rail Tracks. A Lexington couple was charged with Byers' murder, but according to authorities, Resendez admitted to an FBI agent that he killed her. The tenth victim of Resendez is who we're going to speak the most about today. Her name is Dr. Claudia Benton, and on December 16, 1998, she was murdered in her home in West University Place, Texas, a small, affluent town located within the Houston city limits. The evidence found by the police at her home indicated that the murderer broke into the house and attacked Dr. Benton while she was in her bed alone. Dr. Benton's husband and two children were away on a trip at the time. Dr. Benton had been stabbed repeatedly in her back and hands. She had 19 blunt force injuries to her head, including three depression fractures to her skull. An autopsy revealed that Dr. Benton had been sexually assaulted. The cause of death was multiple stab wounds and blunt force trauma. A banjo, a guitar, a stereo, and numerous pieces of jewelry were stolen from Dr. Benton's house. Her Jeep was also stolen from her garage through dismantling of the steering column and jump-starting the vehicle. Dr. Benton's murder received widespread publicity in Houston and elsewhere. Because the small West University Place Police Department was not adequately equipped to handle such a complicated crime scene, they asked the Houston Police Department to conduct the forensic work at the scene. The Houston Police Department recovered latent prints from parts of the Jeep's broken steering column in the garage and from items in the house. On December 18, 1998, the San Antonio police recovered Dr. Benton's stolen Jeep in a motel parking lot in San Antonio, Texas, near railroad tracks. The police processed the Jeep and obtained fingerprints from it. The Houston Police Department searched the fingerprints from the steering column against the Texas Department of Public Safety's Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which is also known as APHIS. On December 26, 1998, they received a response from APHIS that the fingerprints from the steering column matched those of Carlos Cluthier Rodriguez, who had been arrested in Carson County, Texas, in 1993. This was the alias used by Resendez when he had been arrested in 1993 for stealing a motor vehicle and evading arrest in Carson County. Houston Police Department contacted the Carson County Sheriff's Department and obtained fingerprints that had been taken from Carlos Cluthier Rodriguez in 1993. The prints were also submitted to the Western Identification Network, also known as WIN, and what we will be calling it from now on, to search for any other matches. The California Department of Justice's APHIS database, which was connected to WIN, responded with another fingerprint match on Resendez's fingerprints. His fingerprints had been entered into the California Department of Justice's database after his arrest on August 18, 1995 in San Bernardino for trespassing on railroad property, carrying a loaded firearm in a public place, and receiving stolen property. On December 29, 1998, the fingerprints were sent to the FBI's Criminal Justice Information System Division for a check of the FBI's National Crime Information Center, which is also known as, and what we will call it, NCIC. On January 5, 1999, the FBI determined that Resendez had an extensive criminal history in NCIC. Victims 11 and 12 were Norman J. Cernick and Karen Cernick. Norman was 46 and Karen was 47. They were killed on May 2, 1999 in Waymore, Texas. Norman and his wife were bludgeoned to death with a sledgehammer in the parsonage of the United Church of Christ. The Cernic's red Mazda was found in San Antonio three weeks later, and fingerprints linked their case with Claudia Benton's murder. 
The 13th victim was Noemi Dominguez. She was 26 and died on June 4, 1999 in Houston, Texas. She was also bludgeoned to death with a pickaxe in her apartment. Dominguez was a school teacher at Houston Independent School District's Benjamin Franklin Elementary School. Seven days later, her white Honda Civic was discovered by state troopers on the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas. The 14th victim of Resendez was Josephine Konvichka. She was a 73-year-old female who was also murdered on June 4th of 1999. However, this was in Dubina, Texas. So she was bludgeoned in the head with the same pickaxe used to kill Dominguez, but this was in Konvichka's farmhouse that was near Weimar, which is also where the Cerniks were murdered just a month prior. Her home was within shadows of a rail yard. Resendez tried to steal Konvichka's car, but he could not find her keys. Resendez's 15th and 16th victims were George Morber Sr., he was an 80-year-old male, and Carolyn Frederick, who was a 52-year-old female. Frederick was Morber's daughter. They were murdered on June 15th of 1999 in Gorham, Illinois. Morber was shot in the head with a shotgun. The house was located only 100 yards or 90 meters away from a railroad track. Later, police found Morber's red pickup truck in Cairo, Illinois, located 60 miles south of Gorham. In addition, the Jackson County Sheriff's Office found fingerprints in the Morber's ransacked home that positively identified Resendez as the killer. Frederick was bludgeoned to death with the same shotgun used in her father's killing. Most of Resendez's victims were found covered with a blanket. None were of a tall or burly stature, for the killer himself was a petite size and stature. Resendez was described as 5'7 in height, weighing 140 to 150 pounds. He had black hair, brown eyes, and dark complexion. He had scars on his right ring finger, his left arm, and his forehead. He also had a snake tattoo on his left forearm and a flower tattoo on his left wrist. Also in December of 1998, a Houston Police Department analysis asked a customs research officer to place a border alert on Resendez in the customs service database in the event that he was apprehended at the border. However, no lookout had been placed for Resendez under that name or any other of his known aliases at the time. In January of 1999, the West University Place Police met with the Harris County District Attorney's Office, which advised that Resendez should be charged with burglary in connection with the crime at Dr. Benton's house. The District Attorney's Office believed that additional evidence was needed before a warrant could be issued for a homicide charge. A warrant charging Resendez with burglary was issued by a Harris County judge on January 5th and entered into NCIC the same day. The NCIC record noted that Resendez was suspected of murder. However, because the Customs Service does not ordinarily check travelers leaving the country and because the database used is name-based, there was a very slim chance that Resendez would be arrested leaving the country as a result of the border alert anyways. The database is designed for determining if there are lookouts for aliens seeking to enter the United States at ports of entry, not for identifying illegal aliens who cross the border between ports of entry. I know, it's crazy. In January of 1999, the INS Houston District's intelligence officer began preparing weekly intelligence reports that were distributed to the INS's Central Region Intelligence Office, the district director, and to other offices within the Houston INS District. The Resendez case details were included in an issue of the weekly intelligence report for the week of February 22 through the 28th in 1999. The paragraph on Resendez was included in a section of the report entitled Criminal Aliens. It stated that the Houston police had requested INS assistance in locating Resendez, a fugitive wanted in connection with a burglary slash homicide in West University Place, Texas. The paragraph stated that the lead investigator had turned over photographs and fingerprints to the police. It also stated that the investigation was being filmed for the television show America's Most Wanted. The report contained Resendez's warrant number his alien file, also known as A file number, and his NCIC number. 
the Gulf Coast Violent Offenders Task Force, or Gulf Coast Task Force, a multi-agency task force led by the United States Marshal Service, or USMS, was informed about the warrant for Resendez shortly after it was issued in January of 1999. The Gulf Coast Task Force seeks to execute warrants for violent state and federal offenders. Once the information was received, because Resendez's prison records listed a number of addresses in Mexico, they concluded that Resendez was a transient and probably already had fled to Mexico and stopped actively searching for Resendez. In December of 1998, the West University Police Police had contacted Houston FBI Special Agent Mark Young, who profiles violent crimes, and asked him to assess the crime scene at Dr. Benton's house. However, before Young completed his assessment, the police identified Resendez as suspected murder through fingerprints. Young stopped his review of the case because once the suspect is identified, the police do not need a profiler. In May of 1999, the Texas Rangers contacted Young and asked him to review the double homicide of Norman and Karen Cernick, who, if you recall, had been murdered on April 30, 1999, in their home in Weimar, Texas. Texas Rangers who examined these murders noticed similarities between them and Dr. Benton's murder, had the DNA obtained from the murders compared, and it matched. After the two murders were connected, Young ran the crime scenes through a database and determined that a murder that had occurred in Lexington, Kentucky on August 29, 1997, seemed to match the details of the murders of Dr. Benton and Cernix. This was the murder of Christopher Mayer and the attempted murder of Holly Dunn Pendleton. The DNA evidence from the Mayer murder matched DNA obtained from the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Cernick and Dr. Benton. Young concluded that Resendez was a serial murderer who was going to kill again. Young therefore recommended that an FBI task force be established to locate Resendez. According to the assistant special agent in charge of the Houston FBI office, the Resendez case was initially assigned to the Houston FBI fugitive squad in May of 1999. The FBI special agents Roberto Perez and Lloyd Diaz were assigned to the case. The FBI obtained a federal warrant charging Resendez with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. This kind of warrant can be used to invoke federal jurisdiction when a suspect has fled across state lines after committing a crime. The warrant, which charged Resendez with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution for burglary, also described the four murders of which he was a suspect. The murder in West University Place, Texas, in December of 1998, the murders in Weimar, Texas in April of 1999, and the murder in Lexington, Kentucky in August of 1997. This was the third warrant for Resendez. The first was the warrant issued on May 28th of 95 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when he failed to appear to face the charge of receiving a stolen vehicle. The second was the warrant issued on January 5th of 1999 in connection with the burglary and murder of Dr. Benton. The FBI was under the assumption that a bolo was already in place with INS, so he would be stopped at the border if contact was made. However, no one in the INS had entered a lookout for Resendez in any INS database. During the evening of June 1st, 1999, two Border Patrol agents were assigned to the Santa Teresa Border Patrol Station. They performed line watch duties, which involved patrolling by four-wheel drive vehicle and remote desert-like areas between ports of entry along the border. The agents attempted to detect and apprehend illegal aliens crossing the border, usually by foot, into the United States from Mexico. At approximately 9 o'clock p.m., a seismic sensor was activated near an area known as Mount Cristo Rey, about seven miles east of the Santa Teresa Border Patrol Station. The two Border Patrol agents responded to the area and began to search for illegal crossers, but they did not spot anyone at first. Other Border Patrol agents arrived to assist them in the search. The agents observed a person running through the area, but that person eluded them and ran into the brush. At that point, the Border Patrol agents called a Border Patrol helicopter equipped with a powerful searchlight for assistance. With its searchlight, the helicopter located the illegal crosser in an area near railroad tracks on the side of a ravine. The two Border Patrol agents who had initially responded to the sensor alert drove to the helicopter's location where they observed Resendez crouched in a fetal position on the ground trying to hide in the brush. One of the agents climbed down to the side of the ravine, apprehended Resendez, and walked him back to the agent's vehicle. 
Resendez identified himself as De Uribe Rafael Hernandez Hernandez, a name he had not used before, and he provided a birth date of August 16, 1966. An agent asked Resendez several questions, including whether he had ever been arrested or deported before. Resendez responded no to these questions. The agents had remembered seeing the blue color of a tattoo near Resendez's wrist, but he thought nothing of it, because tattoos are typical of poor persons from the interior of Mexico. The agent described Resendez as very quiet and respectful. The agent said that the only unusual aspect of this apprehension was that he was traveling alone, and most aliens travel in groups of three or more. He was transported back to the station and was enrolled in IDENT, and the system presented three different hits, each with an associated photograph as possible matches for Resendez. However, the agent never learned that there was a warrant for Resendez's arrest in connection with the several murders. As a result, Resendez was again voluntarily returned to Mexico a short time after his apprehension. Crime Addicts Podcast is a huge fan of the Netflix series Mindhunter, which is about how the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit evolved and how the FBI agents got into the mind of the worst criminals of the time to learn and understood their thought processes to develop criminal profiling. One of the first criminal profilers, John Douglas, described what appeared to be Resendez's agenda. Quote, he's able to scope out the area, do a little surveillance, make sure he breaks into the right house where there won't be anyone to give him a run for his money. He can enter a home complete with cutting glass and reaching in and undoing the locks. He'll look through the windows and see who's occupying it. The guy is only five foot seven, very small. In fact, the early weapons were primarily blunt force trauma weapons, weapons of opportunity found at the scenes. He has to case them out. Make sure he can put himself in a win-win situation, end quote. On June 8th, 1999, the Houston Police Department convened in a meeting with various state and local law enforcement agencies to discuss the formation of a coordinated effort to locate and apprehend Resendez. No one from the INS was at this meeting. Later that same day, the FBI established a command post at the Houston FBI office for a multi-agency task force. On June 9th of 1999, agents on the task force prepared a lookout notice and package to be sent to Border Patrol sectors. This notice included a request that the Border Patrol be on the lookout for Resendez. It also included a timeline of Resendez's life, a photograph of him, and a memorandum containing a description of the crime scenes. The lookout was sent to at least 18 or 20 Border Patrol sectors all across the Texas border. With some, they sent the notice to the sector and requested that it be sent to the Border Patrol checkpoints within the sectors. With others, they sent the notice directly to the checkpoints. On June 10, 1999, the lead intelligence officer at the Del Rio Border Patrol sector received the lookout notice and was concerned for the safety of Border Patrol agents in the Del Rio sector who might come in contact with Resendez. He forwarded the documents by fax to all offices in the Del Rio Border Patrol sector and wanted to add to IDENT but was unsure of how to do so. Through extensive research and effort, the agent learned what he needed to do and was able to get Resendez's lookout entered into IDENT. On June 21, 1999, the FBI issued a press release announcing that Resendez had been placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives as the 457th fugitive to be added to the list. The FBI press release stated that he was wanted for questioning in a series of homicide, rape, and burglary cases. The release stated that Resendez used freight railroad transportation to travel around the United States and the crimes he allegedly committed occurred near railroad tracks. The press release listed Resendez's numerous aliases and offered a reward of $50,000 for any information directly leading to his arrest. On June 22, 1999, Resendez was added to the IDENT Lookout database. On July 7, the FBI brought Resendez's common-law wife, Julieta Reyes, into Houston from her hometown of Rodeo, Mexico. This was 250 miles below the border. Surprisingly, Julieta turned over to the FBI 93 pieces of jewelry that had been mailed to her from her husband. She was sure they belonged to the victims, and she was right. Relatives of Noemi Dominguez quickly identified 13 of the pieces. As well, George Benton, husband of the murdered Claudia Benton, claimed several other pieces as her property. Resendez's sister, Manuela, had seen her brother's FBI Most Wanted poster and feared that her brother might kill someone else or be killed by the FBI, so she contacted the police. On July 12, 1999, a Texas Ranger accompanied 
by Manuela and a spiritual guide met up with Resendez on a bridge connecting El Paso, Texas to Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. Resendez surrendered. Resendez was taken before a state magistrate, and he was flown to Houston to await trial. Resendez was charged with eight murders. These are the murders of Christopher Mayer, Leafy Mason, Claudia Benton, Norman and Karen Cernick, Josephine Konvichka, George Morber, and his daughter, Carolyn Frederick. Resendez was not charged with the murder of Noemi Dominguez at that time. Just to make a note, that's four additional murders of innocent people that occurred because of a computer glitch after he was voluntarily returned back to Mexico. Jury selection for what would eventually lead to the eight-day trial of the railroad killer began late March of 1999 in Houston, Harris County. The trial faced several postponements. One was caused by a delay in procuring the findings of several psychiatrists to whose examinations Resendez at first would not submit. Another was generated by the defense counsel's action to move the trial from Harris County to a place where, they felt, sentiment was less harsh against the headline-making serial killer. The court might have decided in favor of the motion had the defendant himself not refused to abide with the request. Opposed to a local trial in the outset, he changed his mind afterwards, stating that he believed that no matter where he went, the public mindset was already poisoned against him. Despite his attorney's pleas, Resendez would not consent. After the pretrial upsets were finally settled, the session commenced to a packed courtroom on May 8, 1999. Judge Harmon issued a gag order that kept lawyers from talking freely to the press. Over the next week, a jury equally divided by male and female members heard a series of witnesses from both sides. The trial seemed to center on whether or not Resendez was sane or insane when he committed his crimes particularly the murder of Dr. Benton. The defense brought forth forensic psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Cohen, who diagnosed the defendant as schizophrenic. Cohen claimed that, quote, Resendez did not know his conduct was wrong, end quote, because of a mental delusion that had him believing his victims were evil, said Cohen. Quote, the defendant thought he was justified in his behaviors, end quote. However, Psychiatrists testifying on behalf of the prosecution presented an altogether different summary. Dr. Raymond Laval, while agreeing that Resendez did not have unhealthy views of women and of mankind in general, and suffering from misguided fixations, attested that Resendez, quote, knew what he was doing, end quote, when he murdered Dr. Benton and the others. With that, the prosecutor again reminded the jurors of the railroad killer's brutality unleashed upon his victims, and before detailing Dr. Benton's murder, warned the court that it is, quote, one of the most horrible that you will ever have the misfortune to hear, end quote. During one court appearance, Resendez accused the FBI agent of lying because his family was under the impression that Resendez would be spared the death penalty. However, a jury was responsible for deciding his fate. In fact, what he was promised if he surrendered himself would be one, his personal safety while in jail, two, regular visiting rights so that his wife, sister, and others could visit him, and three, a psychological evaluation. Of the 20 plus witnesses for the prosecution, the last and most impacting was the 23-year-old girlfriend of victim Christopher Mayer. In court, she detailed the bloody assault, which took place on August 27, 1997. According to Pendleton, after Resendez killed Meyer and before he pummeled her, he sarcastically told her, quote, you don't have to worry about him anymore, end quote. In closing arguments, the prosecution pointed to the heinous nature of Resendez's crimes, the premeditative nature of each, the heartlessness displayed, especially to the inescapable evidence of his guilt. Fingerprints, palm prints, and most damaging DNA evidence collected from scenes of the crime. With little weight in their favor, the defense team merely begged for the mercy of the jurors to spare the life of the murderer. Meekly, almost pathetically, the attorney recalled to the jury, quote, our client recognized he had a problem and he turned himself in. That is something, end quote. 
The jurors felt no sympathy. On May 17, 1999, after 10 hours of deliberation, the panel pronounced Angel Matrino Resendez guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Despite his lawyer's pleas, the railroad killer was sentenced to death. On June 21, 2006, a Houston judge ruled that Resendez was mentally competent to be executed. Upon hearing the judge's ruling, Resendez said, quote, I don't believe in death. I know the body is going to go to waste. But me, as a person, I'm eternal. I'm going to be alive forever, end quote. He also described himself as half man and half angel and told psychiatrists he could not be executed because he did not believe he could die. These and similar statements led Dr. Pablo Stewart, a bilingual psychiatrist who evaluated Resendez on two occasions in 2006, concluded that Resendez was not then competent to be executed as, quote, delusions had completely taken over Resendez's thought process, end quote. Despite an appeal pending with the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, Resendez's death warrant was signed for the murder of Claudia Benton. He was housed in the Polensky unit in West Livingston, Texas, awaiting execution. He was executed in the Huntsville unit in Huntsville, Texas, on June 27, 2006, by lethal injection. In his final statement, Resendez said, quote, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience in me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You do not deserve this. I deserve what I am getting. End quote. Resendez was pronounced dead at 8.05 p.m. on June 27, 2006. Claudia Benton's husband, George, was present at the execution and said Resendez was, quote, evil contained in human form, a creature without a soul, no conscience, no sense of remorse, no regard for the sanctity of human life, end quote. Angel Matarino Resendez may have taken part in any one of another 200 cases the FBI says fit his MO. He may turn out to be one of the most infamous serial killers of all time. I'm going to read to you a news article that was posted by CNN on June 30th, 1999. Investigators have taken jewelry and clothing from the Mexico home of suspected serial killer Rafael Resendez Ramirez and are trying to determine if the items are linked to eight slayings in three states. Texas Ranger Sergeant Drew Carter said authorities were examining 100 pieces of jewelry, including rings, bracelets, earrings, and watches collected in Rodeo, Mexico, where Resendez Ramirez has lived with his common-law wife, Julieta Dominguez, and their young daughter. Also taken from the home during an interview last week with Dominguez were clothing worn by Resendez Ramirez, his shoes, and a guitar. Investigators are circulating photographs of the items to family members of the victims and police to see if they recognize something. Authorities said they don't believe Dominguez knew where the jury came from. Quote, we don't have a definite link to anything yet, end quote, Carter said. He said DNA testing was being done. Resendez Ramirez, who is on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, is the focus of a U.S.-Mexico manhunt. The 38-year-old is a native of Mexico, but has spent two decades hopping freight trains around the United States. All the victims, five in Texas, two in Illinois, and one in Kentucky, were killed in homes near railroad tracks. He was charged with the murders in southern Illinois on June 15th and is wanted for questioning in the remaining six. Five of those killings have occurred in the past six months. Investigators have been searching trains on a scale rarely seen in the United States this century. Our special agents haven't seen such a widespread investigation since the days of Jesse James, Union Pacific spokesman Mark Davis told CNN. Davis said hundreds of railroads police are patrolling Union Pacific's 36,000 miles of track across 23 states, about 2,000 trains a day, each pulling an average of 72 rail cars, travel along Union Pacific's tracks. In recent weeks, following publicity on the hunt of Resendez Ramirez, Union Pacific has noticed a definite increase in calls coming into us, Davis said. Usually we average about maybe half a dozen to a dozen calls a day from citizens or law enforcement agencies that have noticed trespassers. 
That's probably now up to at least eight times that amount, he said. Resendez Ramirez was born in Mexico on August 1st, 1959, and was given the names Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez. The FBI said Monday, he has used more than 30 aliases, four birth dates, and four social security numbers, according to police. He is also known by three identification numbers by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which has had him in custody at least seven times. Police suspect adept at slipping over border. Police in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, just across the border from Texas, said Resendez Ramirez is adept at crossing back and forth over the boundary because he used to make his living by smuggling groups of undocumented Mexican immigrants into the United States. The fugitive's mother, Virginia Resendez, lives in Juarez in a neighborhood called Patria. Unlike the massive manhunt for Resendez Ramirez in the United States, there are no wanted posters of him in sight in Ciudad Juarez or the state of Chihuahua, where the police say they have assigned only two agents to the case. Quote, there is a warrant out for his arrest, and if and when he is captured, he will be handed over to Interpol, which has the records for the extradition, said Alejandro Astudio of the Chihuahua Attorney General's office. Some Ciudad Juarez residents say the allegations against Resendez Ramirez pale in comparison with dozens of local murders that have gone unsolved for six years. While many of the murders took place less than a mile from the home of Resendez Ramirez's mother, local police say there is no evidence to link him to any of those cases. They say he has no criminal record in the town. So that uh, article paints kind of a picture of what was going on right at that time in 1999 because they clearly are still looking for him under an alias of Resendez Ramirez. Mm -hmm. And then they also have his common law wife's name as Julieta Dominguez, who we know her as Julieta Reyes. Reyes. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some confusion still going on here. You can see that it it paints a picture of that they're still very much in the unknown right at this time that this article came out. I mean, this was when the uh, he was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. So of course, CNN is going to do uh, an article on it. But you can tell that there's still quite a bit of mix up there based off what we know now. Yeah, definitely. This is just so crazy to me. Yeah, but I, I always love reading the articles because it just gives, it paints a it, picture of exactly what was going on in that time or yes. what people were thinking or what, where what they were like at. was like the common knowledge, yeah, yeah, at that point. It's really interesting. But okay, so Taylor, um, I have a question for you. I feel like, yes. I feel kind of like my blood's <laughs> boiling a little bit on this. I don't know about you. I couldn't <laughs> even like a few times as you're reading this. Dude, one of these days, you guys, we are going to come out with some video. Um, one of these days I say, I don't know when, but (laughs) it's going to happen. But literally like I'm saying that because if this, this recording was recorded with a video, you would see my face drop, my head shaking, complete disbelief. And just like wanted to say like, what the fuck, what is going on here? Like what is going on? Exactly. I mean, we have to keep it in mind that like in this time in history, right? And so technology isn't what it is today, which is something we really heavily have to remember. But the fact that the computer system was not easily accessible or in sync or like people didn't even know how to use it, Mm -hmm. like that's that gets to be so frustrating, especially in our day and age now. I think even more so now because we see what could have happened, what could have been better if they had the technology that we have now. And it's just so sad and unfortunate that people had to like more innocent people had to die just because of a glitch like I just it's so sad I can't even get over that I mean it it really frustrates me Mm -hmm. okay but I do have a question so why do you think that Resendez would surrender to authorities in Texas and the reason I ask that is because it's well known to at least citizens of the United States that Texas is a heavy state imposing the death penalty. So with that in mind, why would you turn yourself in to Texas authorities? Because as we've seen in past cases, if you turn yourself into the Mexican authorities before they extradite you, they will make sure that the United States agrees to not impose the death sentence. So 
my my question is why turn yourself into Texas instead of going through Mexico to avoid the possibility of a death penalty? I'm going to go deep. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I want you guys to kind of think and um, go back to what Kylie was saying through the execution part. Okay, what if, because I don't know for sure, but let's just, let's just toy around with the idea, okay? Many people quoted, he is literally the devil, just walking around in flesh, right? Mm-hmm. If so, but a part of him still knew that that was happening, maybe like that was his way of stopping his actions. Like he knew that what he was doing was wrong. He couldn't stop it. But like he knew that there was no other way for it to stop unless he was put to death. Okay. So you think that if he was never caught, he would have never stopped. If he wasn't stopped, he would have kept going. Absolutely. Okay. That is, I, I do think that that is, I think that he would not have stopped. Okay. So maybe like like a small portion of him. Yeah. Wanted him to. Okay. Okay. And I mean, Unless, that's evidence by so maybe that's one option. But then a part of me also thinks like, well, he wasn't technically an American citizen. So maybe he just got dumb luck and or not dumb luck on upon us, but like shitty luck for him. The fact that he gave himself up in a state that has the death penalty and that believes in the death penalty. And maybe he didn't know. Right. Um, well, and also that could I mean, your thought of him wanting to like this being a cry for help and him wanting to turn himself in is kind of evidenced by based off what happened in trial. I mean, he was mm-hmm. literally fighting his own attorneys. Yeah. So that's a definite possibility. Um, something that I considered on this was that maybe there, he knew that there were more crimes that he had committed in Mexico that had investigators caught him and actually started investigating him further he could have potentially served time in Mexico and maybe knowing the prison systems, he knew he'd at least be in a better prison in the United States than in Mexico. That is actually very true. One last thought that I had on this question um, and topic is that um, we have to remember that they put out a $50,000 reward. And I think that it's possible that there was probably quite a few people in Mexico that were happy and willing to go ahead and claim that considering, you know, the currency exchange. I did not even think about that. Yeah. I'll bet that they, I'll bet he was like thinking that his life was in danger in Mexico. I mean, he was, I mean, I know he worked to get a good deal and he, you know, did this through his sister, Mm -hmm. but I mean, he could have, he could have left even near the border and gone deep into Mexico and never been found. I mean, he could have literally ran for the rest of his life and never been located, but he chose to turn himself in to United States authorities. So you're thinking like, what are you thinking? Like this was his safest option. I do believe that. I mean, what were his options? Stay in Mexico where he's a wanted man and he has, and their their laws are very different. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a hit on his head basically. I mean, they probably wouldn't have cared dead or alive. That's actually a very good point. <laughs> it's <laughs> really a good point. It's really, it's just something, I mean, it's something to think about. We obviously, we won't ever know, mm-hmm. but it's just interesting. I mean, we can speculate. It's fun to toy with these ideas. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tay. You know I'm the woman with all the questions. <laughs> I got more. I love it. Keep it coming. <laughs> Keep it coming. All right. So on a different topic, if you are the wife of Resendez or anybody on death row for that matter, do you allow your common child to visit them while they're in prison sitting on death row? I don't, we don't know the age of his child at this point, but a part of me does kind of think that, you know, cause he was like out and about, right? Mm-hmm. Hopping railroads. So right. he wasn't really around. It seems from, you know, what we're seeing, it doesn't seem like he was really around for that child. Okay, right. so just in that sense, if I was the mom, oh, I don't know. It just kind of goes back and forth. I Because there's parts of me that doesn't think that she knew what he was really doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so she probably talked, I'm sure, well of his name to their child. Um, but, I mean, if if I knew what he was doing and that he finally was put away, 
I don't know if I would bring my child there. If my child was old enough, mm-hmm. say teens, a little bit older, at that point where they can kind of understand what happened mm-hmm. and comprehend what happened, then if at that point, like, he was still there and not, you know, already was put to death, mm-hmm. then maybe I would give that option to my child Mm-hmm. You know, if we've mm-hmm. been able to have conversations about, look, this is what he is convicted of. This is what he did. You know, you have your option to go and see him. Um, I I think it just, for me, uh, if it was done, like, unknowingly to me what he was doing, I probably wouldn't. And I just tell my kids, like, hey, this is what happened. I don't want to go and see. I, I, oh, I don't know. This is a hard one. <laughs> it's I hard go back because and forth. I think that there's like, I think there's a strong argument either way. So whatever you're probably, you know, all of our listeners are probably out there thinking what they would do if they were in their shoes, which is great. That's why I'm posing the question. So please let us know what your answer to these questions are. Yeah, but I think some more insight. I think it goes both <laughs> ways because I mean, you're right. Like a part of who she knew him as was probably, you know, her husband. She, I don't, you know, we don't know that because there was any. she said like she didn't realize that any of these gifts that she's getting were from people that her husband killed. No, but then when she was contacted by FBI and, and was provided the information, she was more than happy to assist in the yeah. investigation and participate and make sure that, you know, that they had... That they, she didn't withhold evidence or anything like that. I mean, she provided them the jewelry mm-hmm. and everything like that. So she was definitely compliant as mm-hmm. far as the investigation goes. But that was one of the topics that was a part of the negotiation would be that he would still be allowed visiting rights for his wife and his child and his family. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me because I think personally, if I were in her shoes and we had talked about that, it does depend on the age of the child. I truly think that I probably wouldn't knowing that it's not like there is a long-term relationship to build. Right. Cause I he do- was gonna die right and i do understand that there's a a portion that of me that's like well but then like they never got to know him but then a part of me is like is that better you know what i mean so it's hard to say but i do i think i think it also i think your point of it it depends on the age of the child is very true but i think i would have a hard time and i mean they lived in mexico he's in in the United States, not far. I mean, Mm -hmm. they said it was about 250 miles south of the border. And then, you know, they were up in Houston. So I get it. I just think that that would be really difficult for me to bring my child around him, giving them like a sense of false hope. Like, oh, you're creating this relationship with this man who is not going to be a part of your life any longer. And when he was a part of your life, he was lying to you the entire time. You know, that's just really hard for me to cope with. But I mean, so I want to like, I want to also bring up, though, the spiritual factor in all of this, where kind of how we ended the last episode, how I will always will try to look for an uplifting, positive outlook upon everything, right? Mm-hmm. So in his final statement, he did mention, like, he allowed the devil to rule his life. He's asking for forgiveness, that the Lord to forgive him, uh, for the, like, allowing the devil to deceive him. So, and... I don't like I you know I'm gonna I haven't uh, I don't know a lot of families like down in Mexico but I do know that a lot of them are religious mm-hmm. and so I want to hope that maybe the whole outlook that she was trying to place upon herself and her children is that dad did some horrible things he is going to you know like he's confess to it he's confessed to his sins and Mm -hmm. he's gonna deal with it you Mm -hmm. know like in this sense but maybe like at this point he tried to change i i feel like it was a very tight turnaround Mm -hmm. but there's always that little glimmer of hope that i like to see in people and maybe that's kind of what his wife was standing on so i do want to say that maybe possibly 
because like his wife was still living in Mexico and a lot of families in Mexico have a very big like Catholic following so they're very religious right and so maybe you know that's where her heart and mind was at in wanting to bring her kids up to you know still show love as God would do and you know he's facing his consequences right and everybody knows what the end is gonna be so maybe I can also kind of see in one sense of it that let's make the best of what you have left Mm-hmm. he's not going to kill anymore, hopefully, because he is now in custody. And so let's make the best of what time we have left of him until he's gone. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. And honestly, she's put in like the most difficult position that I don't even <sighs> so think I could difficult. fault her for either way, depending yeah. on what she did. But I think maybe some people out there potentially would maybe disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But I personally, like putting myself in her shoes, would really struggle with that. So I'm just thankful that that's not me. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, that is a tough place to be. Right. I do have one more question to pose for you, Tay, before we wrap things up and pose these questions to our addicts, okay? So, do you think it's possible, hear me out, was this murder spree possibly out of rage? And what I mean by that is... You have to think about it. He would sneak into the United States and then when he got caught, he would just be picked up and dumped right back into Mexico where he didn't want to be. And the outlook of our country, especially at that time, was that we were a wealthy nation and they were much poorer. So do you think that's maybe some resentment building up based on the fact that he believes he belongs to a country of wealth and is being kicked out of that country back to where he came from, where he clearly didn't have a successful childhood. And, you know, it's considered a poorer country. And maybe he had less opportunity. I'm wondering if, you know, just my thought process, do you think it's possible that these were, these ended up being just out of rage because of the resentment building up just against the United States as a whole? Man, you have some really good questions. Okay. (laughs) So a part of me, um, I'll say I'll agree to an extent. I feel like it kind of makes sense in my head that maybe that was the case when he chose to attack males. Okay. But like the females, I, I don't. I don't understand how how he can like look at a female and whatever situation she may be in and think like I deserve that. I mean maybe, but I'm just thinking like how can a man think that too when mm-hmm. he sees like another woman? Well, the reason another thing like added on to that and the reason for my question is because you have to look at what he was like his MO. What was their reason he was going into this? And the reason was is because he needed something that like impacted him at that very moment. Did he need food and shelter? So he went into a home and killed somebody that had what he needed. Um, And additionally, on top of that, like he would ransack the house and try to find all the valuables. And then he'd send stuff back to his wife. Yeah. And so it was like he was basically like, I don't even want to say killing out of necessity because that sounds so terrible, but in his mind, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it didn't matter really, in, or at least in my opinion, it doesn't really seem like it mattered whether it was male or female. He just wanted to get all the riches from the United States and ship them back to Mexico. And in a sense, you you almost want to say like, oh, that's him like in a way caring for his family, but there's also <laughs> other ways no. to take care of that. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, that you make a good point, And I feel like the more you're explaining it, I do understand that. But then a big part, I, I feel like I'm evenly split between that and the fact that he was just mentally not okay like the fact that he murdered so often so quick did it got what he needed hopped back on that that freight train Mm -hmm. and then went to the next destination i mean there was one that he did it on the same day yeah but the one thing that i do agree with on the psychiatrist for the prosecution for in him them saying that he was sane was because 
you have to look at the people that he chose. He specifically chose people that he knew that he could win in, in a fight with. That's true. And he, he did stake out the area. He knew exactly what he was getting he himself hunted. into. He hunted. Mm-hmm. He, he hunted, hunted to make sure that he didn't prey. get anybody mm-hmm. who would over overcome him. Yeah. So it's not like it was just, I mean, it was a crime of opportunity, but the opportunity had to be perfect. This man was smart. And yes, I think that he was very selfish and thought that he deserved everything that he could take. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, in a sense, it was almost fight or flight. Yeah. <sighs> my mind hurts yes. thinking about this. Because and my blood boils because all those people didn't have to die. He could have stolen and burglarized people without killing them. Literally, like, my heart breaks for Pendleton, too. Mm-hmm. She was, and my heart breaks for her, but at the same time, like, she had a purpose mm-hmm. and, you know, she was needed in order, I think, to mm-hmm. set his fate. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. it's like an everything happens for a reason type thing. But mm-hmm. she, you can go and find, you know, uh, news articles and, and interviews with her to kind of get a feel for it from her perspective as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is interesting. So I definitely recommend if you're going to continue looking into this case to do that, but it's just sad. And I'm, I'm glad that he had a surviving witness, mm-hmm. but it was, but it was still rough. sorry for her. Yes, it was rough. That, I mean, he beat the living daylights out of her. That changed her life. Absolutely. In review, I am going to read these questions to you and then go to our Facebook group page. It's Crime Addicts Pod. First, go ahead and hit that like and follow button. Then go ahead and respond um, to the questions that I'm going to pose up there for you. The first one is going to be, why would Resendez surrender to authorities in Texas knowing that that state has no problem sending people to death's door? Number two... If you're the wife of Resendez or anyone on death row, so I guess also a husband, if you are a wife or a husband of anyone on death row, do you allow your common child to visit them in prison? And number three, was the reason that he murdered possibly out of rage? Head over to our Facebook page, Crime Addicts Pod, and let us know what you think. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the Railroad Killer who has a bigger forehead and about as much mojo as Mojo Jojo from the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and, and stay, stay caffeinated. caffeinated.